call him out. Pull the race card. Be like, if you don't like my work, you're racist. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) Because it's true. It's actually true. Sometimes it's it's true. Sometimes it's true. Hi, I'm Rebecca Cohen. And I'm Maya Garantz. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. I mean, ruin, what do we love? This idea of the perfectible United States. <laughs> you know, like. We're going to ruin the Supreme Court. Yes. But yes, in a larger sense, we are kind of uh, ruining the idea of a more perfect union. We're ruining. The idea of the moral arc of the universe bending towards justice is what we're doing today. I hate to say it, but I feel like that characterization was accurate. We may be ruining the moral arc of the universe, but... It sounds very heavy, but we'll make it fun. We'll make it fun. Well, Uh, actually, no, it's going to be super fun because it's a way for us to all be together Right. In this time that is very difficult. Moment. So we're we're doing this for all of us to be together with this and to try to make sense of what is making us feel so bad. Because <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's bigger than just the decisions themselves, right? Yeah. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting into that. But before we do, we have to do our regular check-in. Mm-hmm. Maya, how are you doing? And what are you drinking? Uh, I'm drinking for the first time in a long time a daiquiri, although I replaced simple syrup with pomegranate syrup because I didn't have time to make simple syrup, and it's still a little too tart. I don't like such sweet, sweet cocktails, but I think some I couldn't find the sugar anyway. I just does it do change it. the flavor profile? Yeah, I'm also using the um, Tahitian rum, which is very dark and caramelly and vanilla-y, okay. so it's very much like a dark, thick kind of take on a daiquiri. Um, I am doing all right. My old lady back problems are absolutely being corrected by yoga. So I just want to say yoga, guys, really, for real, do your yoga. (laughs) (laughs) We're not being paid by big yoga. We are not. (laughs) (laughs) This is a completely genuine... For real. But if you, listeners, if you are in LA, I will take you to the greatest yoga teacher who has ever been. Oh. So just let me know. And the way you can let me know, but I'll tell you about that in a second. Rebecca, how <laughs> are you doing? What are you drinking? I'm doing I'm doing great. I'm weirdly wired. I did not sleep last night. Uh, this is a thing that sometimes happens because I take Adderall for my ADHD. It's an amphetamine. It's a stimulant. And uh, even though the effects of it wear off by afternoon, sometimes it interferes with my sleep. And weirdly, I am here and awake. I'm going to see what happens once I've had a cocktail because that might change the metric. But hey, that's the fun of the show. We're just going to see what happens. And in that vein, I am drinking a Campari and dry vermouth and ginger ale. I don't know if that's an actual drink. That sounds like something that you make up when you haven't slept all night. (laughs) It's not that bad. I've done way worse. It's, you know, it's like in the Negroni family, but with ginger ale. Fantastic. Well, 
I want to let you all know that if you want to come do yoga with me, just <laughs> find me on our Patreon. Uh, you just come to patreon.com slash sauce podcast. You say, hey, I'm in LA. I want to do yoga to fix my aging fucked up back. Maya, where do I go? And we'll go do yoga together. It'll be fantastic. And- while you're there on patreon.com slash sauce podcast, you should check out our membership levels. Yes, you should. Because every membership level takes you to Discord, uh, which yes. allows you get access to the sauce speakeasy where you can ask to come do yoga with me and just we'll get together when you're in LA. I would like to share that one of our longtime listeners and patrons, <laughs> Rolf Stravar, Humbly requests a full episode of traumatic childhood SeaWorld stories, please. We'll increase <laughs> subscription tier to cover therapy. <laughs> to those who didn't hear our recent episode where we talked about orcas and, you know, the general fraught relationship that rich people have had with the ocean. Recently. Yes, recently, but... I reiterate, going back at and least to 1912. And historically. I did mention a very traumatic story of seeing an orca die at SeaWorld in the <laughs> Shamu <laughs> show. It did happen. I actually looked it up afterwards because, uh, first of all, I was like, I just want to make sure I didn't dream that or, you know, hallucinate it. And also I wanted to know when it was. It turns out it was when I was in junior high. I had thought it was in high school, but that would kind of explain why I hadn't said anything to you because I feel like if it had happened in high school when we knew each other, I would have said something. It would have been a whole conversation that we all would have had. It's true. It was before we met. Yeah, I would have been like 12 or 13 years old. Very traumatic. (sighs) So again, anyone who wants to help pay for our therapy for any reason, (laughs) patreon.com slash sauce podcast. And your membership also helps us make this goddamn podcast. That's right. Get on that. All right. So in terms of other traumas (laughs) and high school, no, because I feel like part of what is traumatizing about this moment in the Supreme Court is that it goes contrary to everything we were raised to believe was justice when we were in high school, when we were taking AP US history, like there is something really deep going on here. I would like to start by talking about some of those ideas about the Supreme Court and the ideals that we have about the court or have had at least up until recently and where they come from. And then I kind of want to get into the recent developments that have come into conflict with some of those ideals. All right. So the Supreme Court, for us growing up, and I think for most people alive (laughs) who are old enough to follow these things, we've generally been taught and thought of the court as an institution that establishes, preserves, and expands rights, civil rights for Americans. Yeah, because when we were growing up in the 80s and 90s and aughts, we were coming out of the great society and Mm -hmm. the great jurists like Thurgood Marshall and before him in the 20s, like Louis Brandeis and like uh, William O. Douglas, the great environmentalist. And like this was supposed to be this time 
where that's where we see the turn. Yes, we had those totally racist, horrible, corrupt Supreme Court justices back in the day, Plessy versus Ferguson, but it's not like that anymore. Right. Or even in my recollection, it was never treated like in U.S. history class as that they were corrupt per se. It was more just sort of like these were the beliefs of the time. (laughs) That's how they thought at the time. People were horrible, racist pieces of shit. That's how it was, which is not necessarily true at all. But it's sort of the impression you get. And we were taught that the court has this like wonderful self-correcting mechanism so that you can get a decision like Plessy versus Ferguson because they just didn't know any better. But then later, Brown versus Board came along and the court was able to see the error of its past ways. Like it will correct and we will move toward greater and greater rights and equality. You know, after Brown versus Board, there was Loving, which legalized interracial marriage. Uh, there was the Miranda decision, which enshrined the rights of people being accused and arrested. Roe v. Wade, the Obergefell decision relatively recently legalizing same-sex marriage. And you get this feeling like, yeah, this is how it works. People are kind of backwards. They don't know better. But over time, the court will look at the Constitution and see that this is wrong and they'll fix it. You know, one thing that really struck in my uh, sort of picture of it is the way that like Sandra Day O'Connor was a Reagan appointee, but she would never take away abortion rights. There was this idea that like, also, once we got to those rights as established, that even jurists with their maybe their own personal beliefs are going to stick to what's going to be best for the country. God, that's yeah, so naive. So naive. Oh, my it's God. So naive. I'm going to cry. I know. Oh I know but it's like, yes, precedents are overturned sometimes. But it's always in this narrative that I feel like we were taught. It's always in the service of expanding rights. It's always in the yeah. service of making things yeah. better and more just. And and expanding rights for more different kinds of people. Because yes. like this country used to only protect the rights of like white male landowners. But Correct. then it was people <laughs> who didn't own land. And then it was also black people and women. And then right. queer, like that there is this thing where more and more people get access to rights. And that was something that came out of the 60s. I mean, one of the things about the undoing of laws about child labor protections, like what about the legal rights of children? What about the legal rights of the disabled? What about like that this has been this move towards more and more people being enfolded into the American promise? And another ideal of the court is the idea that it is a um, nonpartisan, not only nonpartisan, but it's like above partisanship. It's above politics. It's this institution that is carefully deliberating based on the facts of cases and being as fair-minded as they can. Now, different justices may have different interpretive bents. They may have different philosophies for how they interpret the Constitution, and they can lead to very different results. But there's this uh, assumption of a good faith attempt to actually interpret the Constitution. Absolutely. 
And even if we know, like we all know, I'm not going to pretend we're so naive. We all know we all want to vote for a Democrat so they'll appoint liberal justices and conservatives want to vote for a Republican so that they'll appoint conservative justices. And we understand that there's like a balance to the court and that matters. We're not naive about that. But uh, I'm brought to mind this West Wing episode. This is what I kept thinking about when we decided we were going to talk about the court. I don't know if you remember this episode. It's the second time that President Bartlett has an open court seat to fill. And he is choosing whether he wants to nominate this liberal justice that he really likes and she's great, but she's just like a little too progressive to right, far to the left. Right, right. Uh, played by Glenn Close, guest starring Giggle. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. And, um, the other option is this like moderate milk toast middle of the road person that's much more likely to get confirmed. And this idea comes up. I don't remember Leo or Toby or one of the people on his staff comes up with this idea that they could nominate two people that they could, I guess, get the chief justice to retire. I don't remember right. the details. I don't remember. But somehow there'll be two seats and they'll nominate Glenn Close to be the first woman chief justice but then they'll also nominate this ultra conservative justice and it'll create balance because they balance each other out and it won't affect the ideological balance of the court either way and it would be uh preferable to someone who's just kind of moderate middle of the road because nothing gets done that way and what sticks out in my mind about the episode is the scene where both the ultra conservative and the very progressive ju judges are waiting in like a conference room to talk to the president and they start spontaneously getting into a disagreement over the constitutionality of some law or another and they get into this heated and lively but not non-collegial like not rude debate like a real debate of ideas about the constitutionality of various laws and the point is we're supposed to see that and be invigorated by this idea. This is what the court is supposed to be. These keen legal minds with great passion for the law. And they might disagree, but they're going to have it out. And through hashing it out, a better balance and better law is going to come out of it. So and this is and this is where you have the quote from Dahlia Lithwick. Part of the problem is that progressives are still telling a story about SCOTUS that is largely a fairy tale. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, West Wing was a fairy tale, if nothing else. But uh, in fact, um, until relatively recently, until a few years ago, public opinion polls showed that Democrats had more faith in the Supreme Court than Republicans. But also, so there are two levels of that. There's how the general public sees it and how the media covers it. And you put this great quote from Leah Lippman at NPR, that journalists who were covering the court treated the court as different from politics. So they didn't investigate until very recently or question, you know, the way that judges hobnob with mega donors or any of that stuff. But I want to say that that fantasy of the sort of above-it-allness Mm -hmm. is a fantasy that is also reflected in how the court sees itself and how lawyers and the legal establishment and law schools, that there's this idea that it is the purest place of legal discourse that can be. So the fantasy is not only instantiated by 
journalism or by liberals or by the sort of public understanding of the court. It is a fantasy that is very much felt by judges themselves and by the legal yeah. establishment itself. And it's something that you see that the court, it's privacy, um, that it's not subject to external whims, but thus it should not be subject to external scrutiny. The mm. way that it is a lifetime appointment, like tenure. Um, I remember when Me Too happened, and there was one judge in particular who, I mean, I'd been hearing stories about this judge for 20 years. And when Me Too happened, multiple of his clerks came forward and talked about it. And what I remember is that in the big article where somebody actually wrote about her first-person experience, and she had left the law for a long time, she was still, she still felt so pained about even sharing this because when you work as a clerk, it's supposed to be so private, so contained, so not subject to external scrutiny that years later, even though obviously this judge had been a fucking scumbag and right. she doesn't even work in the law anymore, she still felt guilty. Because so guilty that, divulging things. Yes. Like it's not, it's yes. not guilty bringing him down per se, but it's like, we're not supposed to talk about like the first rule of Fight Club. It's like the first rule of jurisprudence. Absolutely. We don't talk about what goes on behind those closed doors. So that kind of hermetically sealed idea of this enclosed integrity of legal debate is a huge part of the culture internally and externally. And that's part of why we sort of fall for it, why we have this fantasy of what it is. But right. that's not the reality. That is not the reality. <laughs> especially now. Especially that's now. Right. If it that's ever right. might have been, it's not that now. And that's what I want to talk about now. Uh, right now, I think we can all agree that the Supreme Court is suffering from a bit of a crisis of legitimacy. Oh, Mm. Their their legitimacy is getting questioned. It's not only this aura of untouchable high-mindedness. It's not just that, but it's actually people are asking, like, at what point do we impeach a justice or just ignore their rulings or what? We don't know. We'll I think we'll talk about that more later in terms of what this all of this sort of means going forward. But the questions are starting to be asked. And there's several, I was thinking about this, I think there's several sort of baskets of different factors that have brought us here. Are they baskets of deplorables? <laughs> yes. Yes, they are. So deplorable basket number one, the sort of gamesmanship that the GOP have been very overtly, very blatantly deploying, the sort of not playing by the rules, not respecting what I always understood as being the traditional norms surrounding like the appointment of justices correct and correct mostly that mostly the appointment of justices but i think also yeah. the way the court conducts itself and this really came to the fore i think with the whole merrick garland thing you know when scalia died obama had like a year left as president mm -hmm. nearly mm -hmm. and the gop just would not give merrick garland a hearing and Which, by the way, speaking of the nice centrist milk-a-toast candidate, I mean, Merrick right? Garland was was incredibly respected on the D.C. circuit. And the fact, like, he was an unbelievable 
choice. There was nothing extreme about him. He was the most law-focused, everything we're talking about, the integrity of the law, right. loved by both sides, collegial as fuck, all those, things. Yeah. all those things. Indeed, but none of that mattered Mm-mm. because none of it actually matters to the GOP. That's right. And we went for a year with only eight justices on the court because mm-hmm. they were just going to hold it up until the election, which they did. And then after the election, when Trump got into office, uh, they killed the filibuster. Prior to that, you needed 60 votes in the Senate to approve a nominee. They killed that, so you only needed 51. And we know what happened. Uh, but like the real low points being whatever the fuck happened with Kavanaugh. I, I mean, that's actually literally when I started taking antidepressants. During the Kavanaugh hearings is when I finally sort of went, you know what? I don't have to feel this way all the time. All the time. Oh, Um, my God. And then, of course, they fast-tracked the confirmation of Amy Boney Carrot, as I call her, (laughs) Coney Barrett, uh, right at the end of Trump's term. Was it it after the election? It was like... No, it was was just at the end of his term, but it was so clear that he was going to lose, and it was so clear that he had no... I mean, it was just the whole disgusting lack of good faith destroying yeah, exactly. norms. Yeah, like- exactly. I would never have had a problem with them trying to get their nominee in with what time they had, except that they had held up Obama's appointment and not allowed him to make an appointment for that whole year. So it's like, yeah. wow, you really have no values at all. So that that was, I think, harmful to the credibility of the court. Absolutely. And I think what we've seen over the past couple months has been even more harmful. <laughs> well, and because of this, you know, Leah Littman, as the quote that that we said earlier about how because the Supreme Court was seen as above politics, journalists didn't really dive into it. Mm-hmm. Well, journalists are now diving into it. Uh, God bless ProPublica every fucking day. God bless them and keep them. They did an incredible series of articles about the profound corruption, specifically of various conservative members of the Supreme Court. Clarence Thomas's relationship with Harlan Crow, billionaire slash collector, passionate collector of Nazi memorabilia, who paid private boarding school tuition for Thomas's grandnephew, who bought his mother's house in which she's living rent-free, who uh, brought him on very luxurious vacations and trips um, where they spent ample time together with other very wealthy mega donors, many of whom have had or may in the future have cases before the court. Correct. Correct. And then Alito very recently all of a sudden has some like crazy op-ed in the Wall Street Journal being like, this article is about to come out and I didn't do anything wrong. And then it's like, yeah, because an article is about to come out saying that you did a lot wrong, that you take these very fancy trips on private jets. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and it's revealing this way that for the right-wing justices, at least, when they get onto the court, they're being kind of adopted <laughs> by yes. a billionaire. Like a billionaire sort of adopts them. Yeah, this uh, Paul Singer, the guy whose private jet 
Alito was on, and he went on. He a had to trip take that seat. He had to take that seat. Well, the, it, if he the hadn't jet taken was the going, seat. whether he was on it or not, I love that because it's a very Jewish kind of legalism, like very orthodox Jews will, you know, believe that you can't use electricity on the Sabbath on Saturday. But like, if you turn your lights on on Friday and you just leave them on, that's okay because you didn't use electricity. It was or already on. You have a Shabbos goy turn it on for you. Right. Right. If, if, <laughs> If a non-Jew turns on the lights, then you aren't using the lights. <laughs> That's right. They just happen to be on. Yeah, it's like this total like legalism that goes against the spirit of the law completely. Oh, God. But it's technically acceptable. Um, but yeah, he wrote this preemptive op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, which is like problematic on so many levels. What I find, though, most salient about it is that he insists that this luxury fishing trip private jet travel, all of this stuff, falls under the category of personal hospitality, which doesn't have to be reported. It doesn't. It's very clear that travel, transportation, does not count as personal hospitality. But that aside, uh, Alito also insists that it didn't affect his decision-making. He doesn't even know this guy, Paul Singer, well enough for it, uh, him to have had to recuse himself when subsequent to that fishing trip, the guy had a very major, uh, personally enriching case before the court. Right. It's just like a wild contradiction of like, I was just enjoying the personal hospitality of someone that wanted to have me as a guest, but I don't even know the guy. Then why are you accepting such lavish hospitality from him? What well, are you doing on a fishing trip with him? This at the same time, somebody tweeted that like, uh, Kagan and Brown and Sotomayor should start accepting these gifts so people start taking it seriously. <laughs> like, because Kagan has this thing where it's like she didn't even take some smoked salmon that somebody wanted to give her because she didn't even want to create the appearance of impropriety. Right. And like, right. that's the thing is that there are these rules that they are absolutely obliterating. And I think part of the reason they're so, these justices are so upset is because the entire time they've been a justice, they've been kind of allowed, like nobody's been looking at that. And back to the Me Too thing with the court, like there is no HR and there is no election and it's a lifetime appointment and there's right. no and there's no structure, there's yeah. no oversight, there's no structure in place to deal with this, acknowledge this, them, report yeah, this, to hold them accountable. For ethics violations if they are occurring. Correct. Yeah. There's nothing except the sort of court of public opinion, if you will. And boy, that has made Alito bristle. <laughs> and oh he's not God. the only one. Um, but he's a particularly like vocal one. I have to say, I hope ProPublica, because another one of those things that's still hanging out there that makes me like, when is that going to be dealt with? Is like Kavanaugh had tremendous debts that yeah. all of a sudden kind of magically disappeared yeah. and got paid off. And I can only think that some journalist over at ProPublica is digging because sometimes you're I like, I hope so. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. And the funny thing is, <laughs> these gift scandals are like the tip of the iceberg. Yes. I, I, I wonder about it. I wonder if for people who report on the court, they're around it so much that they don't even realize that Correct. it's worth reporting on. Correct. And and definitely the justices in question don't think it's worth reporting 
on their forms where they have to disclose things like expensive gifts and donations. Uh, neither Alito nor Thomas seemed to think that they had any obligation to do that when it came to things like somebody buying your mother's house and then letting her continue to live there without paying rent um, or paying for your son's tuition and so or forth. Just, yeah, over buying property, there's because the buying the mother's house isn't the only one. Like, right, there no, are there's more instances. property. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. of real estate hanky-panky going on. And there's this way that how dare I, and it's part of the fantasy that we have. How dare the little people have opinions about how we about live this our stuff, lives? About this stuff that they don't even know about. Yeah. You don't even yeah. know what you're talking about. You don't know about. what you're talking about, you general public. ProPublica doesn't know what it's reporting. That they would think that a trip on a private jet would influence Alito's mind. How insulting. I really think it goes back to what you were just saying about the court uh, believing their own aura, you know, yeah. believe yeah. this culture of their own sort of insular, separate from it all specialness. I think Absolutely. that they believe that. And um, maybe that's part of why they didn't report these things, because like it doesn't even <laughs> occur to them that it's worth reporting because... How how could that have a corrupting influence? They they are they as believe we say, themselves to be above it. They, they are as we say high on their own supply. <laughs> but I think that we could have seen this coming when Bush v. Gore happened, and that's where you started to see this turn. In retrospect, yes, you know, with the benefit correct. of hindsight. With the benefit of hindsight. Yeah, although for for many people they saw it in the moment. To be fair, but like in hindsight, you're like, okay, yeah, that was a big old red flag that Bush v. Gore, right? That's right. You had the Supreme Court deciding a presidential election, and with very flimsy legal constitutional basis, and including in their decision the stipulation that this did not establish any new law or precedent going forward, but it was just for this one instance. Yeah, just for this one time. Oh just this one God. time. It's a one-off deal. Uh, yeah, that was a pretty big red flag. And I think, I mean, we were young, but I do think at the time I still believed in this sort of general idea of like, okay, this sucks, but Bush will be a one-term president and then we'll get a Democrat in, and then we'll fix the court. You know, it'll get better. Um, but yeah, then Citizens United did happen uh, subsequent to that, which was the case that found that corporate donations to political candidates constitute free speech, which is a theme we're going to be seeing again and again in uh, some of this conversation. More recently, fast forwarding to the past year, I think the thing that really sort of tipped the scales and made people feel like, okay, we have passed a point of no return, was the Dobbs decision yes. that overturned Roe v. Wade. And I think a big part of that was that it really, truly shattered that illusion of, well, once a right is established, it's a right. Mm -hmm. Right? <laughs> Isn't that how it works? You're not going to go backwards. And they're like, sure as shit we are. And um, not only did they go backwards in taking away a human right, but they overturned a precedent that they all had claimed to respect. 
That's right. In their nomination hearings. In their nomination right? hearings. And and they are saying that birth control is coming. So for sure. I mean, birth control is, is already here if you look at like the Hobby Lobby decision. That's right. That's right. Several years ago. But yes, they took away a right. They showed themselves to be blatant liars in regard Absolutely to their, they did. their bullshit claims that they would respect precedent or that they did respect precedent. Mm-hmm. And um, I just want to read this one quick quote from the decision, from Alito's decision on Dobbs. He wrote, This court cannot bring about the permanent resolution of a rancorous national controversy simply by dictating a settlement and telling the people to move on. Whatever influence the court may have on public attitudes must stem from the strength of our opinions, not an attempt to exercise, quote, raw judicial power, unquote. Which is like the incredible. Delusional. Wow. Delusional, right? Because then, then I start asking, does he believe, does he believe his own bullshit? Or does he know he's full of shit? Like, how could you say something like that and not know you're full of shit? That saying that he's not exercising raw judicial power, except that he's taken such umbrage at people's backlash against the decision. He's been so touchy about it that you're like, oh, maybe you really did think that people would read your decision and be like, wow, this is such sound legal reasoning. I I guess I can't have control over my own bodily autonomy. I mean, not with reasoning like that. I feel like that's where this kind of insulation from the people, like that's, yes. again, part of this fantasy is like these judges are insulated and that insulation that, is, first of all, they're not like, insulated, but second right. of all, But that in a way they fantasy, are because they do yeah. live in a bubble of privilege where they, they do. don't have to interact with the people that's absolutely their right. decisions affect. And then when people, when, God, when people protested outside of their houses and they're like, how dare you protest outside my house? How dare you not serve me in a restaurant? And it's like, because you're impacting people's actual lives, their right. actual lives every day. But you're not allowed to impact the actual lives of the justices. That's not how this works. That's right. That's right. So this session, whew, this session's been a doozy. They've dropped some some real bangers here. All right. So <laughs> we have Sackett versus EPA. Mm-hmm. Um, they removed the EPA's authority to protect wetlands. Basically, that's it. That's it. They, they said um, that it was an overreach because the EPA is empowered to protect waterways, right, and bodies mm-hmm. of water. Mm-hmm. And um, they decided that wetlands don't fit under that, that they don't qualify. Um, this is one I didn't even know about till you mentioned it today. New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus yep. Bruin? Correct. Where they they uh, <laughs> they threw out a New York law that regulates concealed carry permits uh, by determining that any gun regulation must be consistent with gun laws that existed when the Constitution was drafted in the late 18th century, which I feel like that's something to discuss in the next yeah. segment. But like, yeah. wow, wow, because part of the idea of the court and our fantasy of the court is that laws evolve 
And the more perfect union evolves as the world the, changes. The living constitution. The living, breathing constitution. The world changes. It reflects it that. Designed mm. by the founders to be able to adapt to changing circumstances as they foresaw would be necessary. Correct. I thought, I thought Correct. that was like some basic fourth grade shit. But Then okay. you have the 303 creative, which uh, in Sotomayor's dissent, it undermines protections for LGBTQ anti-discrimination. Uh, Sotomayor says the court for the first time in its history grants a business open to the public a constitutional right to refuse to serve members of a protected class. A protected class. Yes. We're definitely taking away constitutional rights from human beings, except the constitutional right to have a gun without any regulation. Apparently yes. that's the one. That's the one we keep expanding. But um, we're giving a constitutional right to discriminate. That's the new one. That's mm -hmm. that's the real genius Absolutely. approach to the law, I find, is the, the right to discriminate that they're so in love with. Uh, yeah, in this case... If anyone's not familiar, the court sided with a web designer who claimed that Colorado's anti-discrimination law violated her First Amendment rights uh, because she wanted to put a statement on her website saying that she wouldn't design any gay wedding websites or other stuff uh, because she's a Christian and it goes against her beliefs. And yeah, the court agreed that her religious freedom... Well, it was not just religious freedom. It was freedom of speech. That yes. if she were to be forced to, forced, really, just like it would be essentially slavery. Oh, um, if they were to essentially enslave her in the website designing dungeon and force her yeah. to produce websites for gay weddings, um, this would be compelled speech. Yeah. And as the state can't limit your speech, it also can't compel you to express ideas that you don't believe in. Uh, also, they killed affirmative action yep. this yep. past week. They sure did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, they've, goaded, they've gutted massive parts of the Voting Rights Act. Just those things go together because they're basically saying like yes. people of color are not it's just no longer necessary. We do not need to protect <laughs> right. no, voting it's the rights. Ideal of, it's the ideal of col color blindness. Yes, um, correct. Because we're not a racist country anymore. There's no racism anymore. So yeah, we don't when have they, to. When they got to the voted ra Voting Rights Act, I actually made like a little cartoon about it with Scalia saying, we don't need the Voting Rights Act anymore. Racism is a thing of the past. You can trust me. I, I heard it from my one black friend, and then chose Thomas. I'm not doing it justice. Maybe I'll post it on the Patreon so people can. I see think it. you should. And then, uh, f yeah, they also overturned uh, Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness program. So that's been another thing that we've been seeing coming up. Uh, individual yes. human rights, not as important. As business rights. Business and corporate Very rights. business rights, corporate rights. That's what Absolutely. we see with Citizens United and ongoing. Exactly. And it, I think the, the overarching trend that encompasses all of those trends is legislating from the bench, as yes. it has been called. Conservative people, the Republican Party, they've talked a big game about judicial overreach and how they don't like legislating from the bench. 
but it's just what we're seeing again and again. They don't like policy. The court doesn't like policy and they're just killing that policy. And then they just find whatever justification they need to in the law. And this is not, it's not a new thing. I, I was always struck by the way in which constitutional law always seemed to me like a lot of it was finding ways to justify the outcome that you kind of wanted anyway. Uh, if you're smart enough, you can look at a text and find some way to interpret it that serves whatever conclusion you were going to come to. But I feel like the arbitrariness and hypocrisy of what they're doing has just, it's off the charts. Well, also because there was such a huge thing about that the right wing had about like, oh, the left wing wants to uh, confirm activist judges. Yes, and activist judges. Always, do you remember the activist judge moment? And as always, liberals are like, no, that's not what we're doing. And they totally like get sucked into that conversation. Yep. And then yep. what do the right, what does the right wing do? They install activist judges doing activism in the Supreme Court. God, we fall for it every time. <laughs> So speaking of activist judges, all these things that we've talked about in terms of the factors that are lending illegitimacy to the court right now, that are impacting the court's credibility, the gamesmanship in appointing the justices, the corruption scandals, the fucked up decisions, they are all connected, deeply, deeply connected. And the appointing of right-wing activist judges is not just by accident, not even by accident of like right-wing politics where, oh, of course, we're going to appoint judges that ideologically match with us. No, this has been a deliberate plan, a deliberate campaign, a project by well-funded, very well-funded, far-right and corporate interests with the specific aim of capturing the court and turning it into a tool for their Christo-fascist agenda. They have been working on this project since at least the early 80s. Yes. The end point of which is to create what, they, what they've done. The end point is where, what they've arrived at, to create a body of unelected super legislators that cannot be checked. They have no checks or balances or oversight. They have lifetime appointments, and their word is supreme. Yeah. Their word is law. And that's what they have accomplished. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that because I know it sounds like a conspiracy theory. But it's but it's real. It's so real. <laughs> it's, it's real, um, but let's back it up with some facts. Yes. So and just so we know, Democrats have won the po popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections. But because of the Electoral College, uh, Republican presidents have appointed six of the nine justices. I mean, think about that. Democrats won the popular vote in seven out of the last eight elections, but two six of the nine... Two-thirds of the court. Two-thirds of the court. ...are Republican appointees. I mean, right there, you know there's some shenanigans. <laughs> that's, that's not on the up and up. But I think one of the things that's important is to remember that, like, our fantasy, which we started the episode with, of, like, our fantasy of what the Supreme Court should be is, is a very recent fantasy. Like the Supreme Court 
throughout the 19th century and much of like the early part of the 20th century was not this this organ for expanding rights like it was mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. it was not no, can i just no, no. briefly tell this quick story that just amuses me to no end yeah so you know chief justice rehnquist who was this totally right wing pro business total he's a total racist sexist yeah. all of those things so in every picture that you see of him when he was chief justice he has these stripes on his sleeves of his robe oh my god yeah i know what you're gonna say that was just him the chief justice does not officially have to have any stripes on the sleeve of his robe Rehnquist just decided i'm gonna decorate my robes fancy because i'm big and fancy and it was completely made up so in terms of that fantasy of themselves so even in the historical moment of the justices that we think we had people like Chief Justice Rehnquist with the stripies on his robe. Oh, yeah. Like pumping himself up, propping himself up with stripes on his robe to make him look special next to the other justices. So you'd know he's the special one. Yeah. It, it, it goes again to their, yeah, like their culture. And also it goes to their ability to make up rules on the fly. And it's just whatever they say goes. You're like, what do you mean the Chief Justice doesn't wear special and- stripes? And for Brown versus Board to be such a powerful decision, saying that separate but equal does not exist, that means that all the way up until 1951, the courts did not support that. Right. Right. Well, but see, here's the thing. When you look it up, if you look up like separate... Sorry, 1954. 1954. 1954. Um, If you look up separate but equal doctrine... It will say Plessy versus Ferguson. I don't even know off the top of my head the year of that. It was mid-19th century. And so you get the impression, and from what I remembered from high school, you get the impression that like Plessy versus Ferguson was decided in the 19th century, and that was just the law of the land until Brown v. Board came up. But that is not true. The court heard other cases. As late as 1927... The court in Gong Lum versus Rice uh, heard a suit by a Chinese-American girl, a little elementary school girl, who uh, was being kicked out of her white school. And they upheld separate but equal and said the school could kick her out. And that was fine because she could go to the black school, which was separate but equal. Historically speaking, the U.S. Supreme Court has been one of the most conservative U.S. government institutions, and also historically one of the weakest of the three branches. As I think you could argue, look, I'm no constitutional scholar, but I think you could argue that was the founder's intent, that they wanted elected offices to be where the seat of power really was. But traditionally speaking, across history, pretty weak branch and very conservative. Yes. Uh, At times, shockingly so. It all changed with FDR, really. Yeah. Which is also interesting because if you Google FDR Supreme Court, you see a lot of articles about how he failed this attempt at court packing. He was frustrated that the court was uh, shooting down his New Deal legislation and he wanted a workaround. So he tried to pack the court, add more justices, and it failed. But... That's almost like a footnote, because what actually happened is he was president for so goddamn long, 
he wound up over his tenure appointing eight justices. And he changed the makeup of the court. Obviously, he was a progressive president and he appointed progressive judges. And it, it really did change the course of American history. After FDR, um, you have, let's see, from 1942 to 68, you have four different Democratic presidents and one Republican, the Republican being Eisenhower, who's like pro-labor environmentalist. Like you would not call him a Republican by anything right. that is recognizable as a Republican by today's standards. Um, so you really like solidified this left-leaning court. I don't even like using that terminology because I feel like it plays into a, a sort of a dichotomy. It's not that it's left-leaning, but it's, as you wrote in our notes, that the Warren court introduced the idea of a SCOTUS that protects and expands rights. Yes. And I've been thinking a lot about our episode with Julia Sweeney about um, Catholicism and how the moment of social justice Catholics that we think of as what Catholics are was actually a blip in the long history of Catholicism. Yeah. Similarly, the Warren yes. Court, which is what we think of as what the court is supposed to be, was a historical blip. It was. It was. In what the court is. Yeah. Yeah. It's. It was the exception. It just happened to be the exception when we were coming up. It was the exception right. that scaffolded everything we knew as where politics was going. Exactly. And even when we saw in the 70s and 80s and 90s that the court was making decisions that were not great, that seemed partisan, uh, that seemed very conservative, there were also other decisions that seemed to be continuing to preserve and expand rights. Correct. So that sort of underlying idea of the court as a protector and expander of rights that came out of the Warren Court in the 50s and 60s seemed to be holding. Seemed to be anyway. But what was really happening was actually <laughs> something quite different. Conservative organizations started forming. I mean, I don't know if they started forming, but the ones that are most prominent today started forming in the early 1980s, like the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Federalist Society. And they formed in direct response to this. Yes. They saw what was what had happened in the Supreme Court over the last few decades, and they were not happy with it. So the Federalist Society is the one that I think is most worth talking about. Yes. Because uh, they really are the crux of this project to destroy the court. So um, they're an extremely well-funded right-wing organization, and they really are the architects of our current court. Not only of who's on the court, but like everything that the conservatives on the court do yes. is kind of designed by the Federalist Society. They were founded in 1982 as an effort to train and promote conservative-minded lawyers into prominent positions with an eye toward installing far-right judges. That was always part of the plan. And not just that they were going to find them, that they were going to try to scaffold it like with a legal scaffolding. Legal justification. Like well, the justification the context, of this. Yes. The, the group was founded at Yale, right? Yeah. It was a group of like 200 conservative law students and professors from like top law schools that met at Yale. So they saw themselves as like, or they claimed that they saw themselves as 
these sort of maverick minds in a predominantly liberal legal field. Law professors were just like promoting this uh, conventional liberal wisdom, liberal judicial wisdom. And they wanted to sort of oppose that, go against that. Uh, very quickly, within a couple of years, they were being embraced by and funded by very powerful, very wealthy conservative interests and organizations, um, including like the Cokes and the Mercers and a whole bunch of people I hadn't even heard of because I don't make it a point to follow this stuff and nobody's really reporting it in a place where I'm going to see it. So interesting, but a lot of very ultra right wing, very powerful people. And over the years and decades, the um, Federalist Society grew into this enormous network for cultivating and promoting ultra conservative lawyers and judges. It's and like networking is really what it's about. It's about meeting people, being part of a club, being part of their in-group. And you prove your bona fides with them basically by being opposed to Roe. Being opposed to Roe v. Wade, that's like the litmus test. They you know, claim to be promoters of constitutional originalism. Yes. So going back to the gun law thing. Right? right. So if law is supposed to be separate from political, from just those nasty, raw political interests, it should be about some bigger legal idea. And their big legal idea that they were going to use to scaffold all of these decisions and to push law in the places they wanted to push it was this idea of constitutional originalism, which is that it doesn't matter what we think now. What matters is what did they think when the Constitution was first written hundreds of years ago? What would a property-owning white man of 1791 think about abortion or owning a right. gun or right. telephones? Well, they didn't have telephones. Well, what would he have thought about telephones? I mean, it's absurd. No, it's absurd. It's, it's absurd, but... The telephone thing is an interesting example because when it comes to things that are like technological and that they wouldn't have had in the late 19th or the late 18th century, like Scalia famously would try to find an analogy and apply reasoning from that time. Like there was one case about a um, like a whether police could put like a GPS on a suspect's car to track it without a warrant. And Scalia said it would be as if there were a tiny constable placed within the vehicle. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, I'm, that's in one of his decisions. I'm so, not kidding. But, but so, so, and this is what I think is also interesting, which is, of course, as you might imagine, there's an arbitrary picking and choosing of who they look to, to, right. for instance, with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, uh, Alito looks at this one guy who was a total insane misogynist, who even in his moment in the 1700s, people thought was extreme. He does not mention Benjamin Franklin putting abortion recipes in poor Richard's almanac. Hmm. Somehow that very direct 1700s understanding of abortion and the fact that until there's the quickening, until the mother feels the movement of the fetus within her, right. it's not really a thing. Somehow that doesn't make it into the decision. Isn't that fucking funny? Right, right. It's almost as if this whole grand judicial philosophy of originalism is actually just bullshit. Yeah. It, almost as if, 
they just will use whatever they need to to justify the most conservative outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about the consequences of this Federalist project, um, because they have become over the years the main gatekeeper for federal lawyer jobs under Republican presidents, judgeships under Republican presidents. If you want to be a judge under a Republican president, you have to get approved by be a member of the Federalist Society. It's just you have to. And out of out of Bush v. Gore, by the way, there is the organization that came out of it on the more progressive side called the American Constitutional Society. But it's recent and they don't have as much money. <laughs> well, they just don't. That, I love that you brought that up because a founding member of the Federalist Society, Ted Olson, argued Bush's case in Bush v. Gore. And the lawyer for the Gore side coming out of it was like, shit, they've got their shit together. They are organized. We need something like that on the left. And they started the, what's it called? The American Constitution Society? American Constitution Society, the ACS. Currently, the Federalist Society has a revenue of $20 million a year. The ACS, it's like $6 million. So um, in addition to Ted Olson, who argued Bush's case in Bush v. Gore, Legal positions in the George W. Bush administration were overwhelmingly staffed with Federalist Society members. Approximately half of Bush's nominees for appellate court judgeships were Federalist Society members. Um, And members helped to encourage Bush's decision to terminate a nearly half-century-old practice of giving the American Bar Association confidential early access to judicial nominees so that they could vet those nominees and vet their qualifications. And it was like privately done before the nomination was made public. Because the people who do care about the purity of law Mm -hmm. do not skew conservatives. So one of the things that you see is this desperate attempt to put judges in position of power who actually are not qualified. Right. Right. And like and who not. come from like bumblefuck law school because actually judges that whole scene is very conservative. It's very um snobby. They want people who come from Harvard and Yale and like super schmoo law schools. I mean they're totally status obsessed, right? I'm talking about yeah. the left. I'm talking I'm not talking yeah, no, about the right wing. Yeah. Yeah. But the problem is because what they want to do actually does not conform to the law. The Federalist Society has to start like creating a pipeline from super basic law schools that are like conservative or from religious colleges or kind of weird. They have to pull the ABA out of it. They don't want this discussion of are they qualified. Kavanaugh had a decision where it was like there were a lot of like basic legal mistakes in it. <laughs> Like there is a way in which that whole fantasy of themselves is undermined by the fact that anybody who follows that is not going to agree with a lot of those decisions. So they're looking for loopholes around it because they can't actually justify it. Yeah. And uh, during Trump's tenure, they um, well, I don't want to say the Federalist Society did this, but the GOP bypassed a lot of the traditional Senate procedures 
for vetting correct like bipartisan correct. procedures for vetting nominees correct. for judgeships um uh, federalist society members also played crucial roles often behind the scenes not always arguing the cases but they were involved in the heller decision uh i love this shit because in heller the court found in the constitution the personal individual right to bear arms meaning like your right to own a handgun shall not be violated they found that in the second amendment and this is this this group the federalist society like in their founding meeting at yale when they were all talking about their ideals robert bork the defeated reagan nominee was one of the founding members and he spoke about how their their whole agenda was to stop these liberal judges and justices and law professors who were just inventing rights. They were just finding rights for people who had never been protected by the Constitution before. He right. literally said that. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but he did say that. And so it's it's interesting because that's exactly what happened in Heller. It's just the right to like kill more people. But okay. Yeah. Unless those people are fetuses. Right. In which case... You know, they whatever. have all the rights, I guess. All the rights, all the rights. The Federalists were also involved in Citizens United and in the the Sibelius case, the attempt to overturn the Affordable Care Act, which failed. Four out of the five justices who ruled in favor of Hobby Lobby in that case had Federalist Society ties. Um, I note, I want you to note, when you look at the Hobby Lobby case, you see two sort of characteristic features associated with Federalist Society jurisprudence. Um, one being the misuse of the First Amendment, the idea that religious freedom or free speech enables you to uh, discriminate. discriminate. Basically, yeah. full stop, that's pretty much it. And um, the reliance in the court's decision on flat out false information. Like in Hobby Lobby, the uh, company was claiming that they didn't want to follow the Obamacare mandate to pay for employees birth control coverage because the morning after pill was uh, an abortion. An abortion, yes. They were basically saying it's, it's an abortion pill and that goes against our Christian beliefs. And the court in its decision just sort of like took that as truth. Like, it's not true. It's not medically accurate. It's no. not true. And that is definitely a theme that you're going to see a lot. Well, and again, in terms of things that are like organizations that are trying, like one of the things that happens is that judges can't be expected to be up on all of the latest science on everything. So there are organizations that are put into place to, for instance, educate judges on environmental issues or to educate judges on various issues that they might not have direct concrete evidence of, right? Sure, sure. So this can be very positive and important, and this can also be totally misused and manipulated, right? So this is something that we're seeing right now, which is that in that bubble, in the bubble of the judicial world, if the only people who are getting the ears of the justices who are educating them, who are confirming their biases, who are taking them on private planes or whatever, 
are coming from a really specific ideology. And those judges do not feel like they have to expand that kind of ideology. You're going to see a lot of like bad science in their decisions. They're not getting the good science. They're not getting access to the good science. They're being blocked from the good science. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't known that was a thing, but that checks out. But back to the Federalists, we should add that they were crucial to getting Trump elected. Yes. And they sort of gave him their stamp of approval, largely after he agreed to let them assemble the list of 21 people from which he would choose the nominee to replace Antonin Scalia if he were elected president. I'm not going to pretend like it was the deciding factor in Trump becoming president, but it definitely helped. And during the Trump presidency, you know, they hand-selected all of the conservative judges to fill all of the vacancies throughout the federal judiciary and, of course, the Supreme Court. So here we are, where of the current nine justices, at least five are current or former members of the Federalist Society. Yeah. Like, I don't, I, I don't know if I can sufficiently emphasize the implications of this, that, that this organization has been so effective at capturing the Supreme Court that at least five members of the six-member conservative majority are their vetted, like, hand picks. They're hand-selected by Now, to be fair, when there is a liberal judge to be put on the Supreme Court by the president. Mm. They're all, there are also progressive organizations that are there to do the labor of initial vetting, of putting together lists. They, there right, are right, those right. groups too, but they don't have that focused control of the Federalist Society and specifically of Leonard Leo. Like, I I want to be clear about that. Like, there are groups, there are structures in place. I think one of the things that we have to look at is that a president cannot know everything all the time. He depends on other people to, like, do some of the labor and then come and tell him. And that is true for for both sides. But what you don't have on the left is this one figure with access to the levers of conservative money, with such a specific directed idea of what a judge should be and what they should vote for, yeah, the way that the right wing does. And I think it's worth noting that a lot of people characterize the Federalist Society, um, interestingly enough, because it's not a very conservative sounding characterization, but they are very networky. They're like Borg-like. Yeah, that they really have this philosophy, this ethos of like, we're all part of this big project. And it's not about elevating any one person. It's we're all serving the project. And we're just going to get our people in there. It doesn't matter who it is, as long as they are one of us. So Leonard Leo that you mentioned is is a really interesting figure. He raised has raised hundreds of millions of dollars from a large network of dark money to support this project of capturing the judiciary. I have a nice little quotation from him here. The key, this is about his goal here, 
The key was to figure out how to develop what I call a pipeline. Basically, where you recruit students in law school, you get them through law school, they come out of law school, and then you find ways of continuing to involve them in legal policy, he said. It sounds nice and innocent enough and sort of like, oh, it's a professional network and that's what they do. But I just think it's really interesting the way he talks about a pipeline. It's a pipeline for conservative judges. And that pipeline doesn't just sort of like end when they become judges. It's not just getting you from law school to your judgeship. This is where it's going to kind of circle back to what we were talking about in the first segment. Federalist society judges and justices continue to be involved in this network, not just mentoring the up-and-comers, but they continue to be cultivated by Leo and his very wealthy, very powerful network of donors to make sure that they stay on program. And that is part of these corruption scandals. Leonard yes. Leo helped organize Alito's Alaska fishing vacation. Like, we don't want to sound like conspiracy theorists, It's but it's kind of hard when they make it so fucking easy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's is it even a conspiracy theory when they're just doing it? They're really no, they're doing just it doing the it. Open. They're just doing it's it. It's not secret, right? It's not in a pizza basement or anything. It's just, it's on an Alaska fishing trip. Yeah, Leonard Leo... helped to organize that Alaska fishing trip. He was on that trip. Leo invited Singer to join, the private jet guy. He asked, Leo asked Singer if he and Alito could fly on the billionaire's jet. This was shortly after Leo had played an important role in the justice's confirmation to the court. Um, They stayed at a really luxurious lodge whose owner is also a major donor to Leo's political groups, as is Singer. Like, th- this, this whole process of, uh, of owning the court, like I said, it's not just getting the judges in there, getting the justices in there. It's giving them incentives to stay on track and also giving the wealthy donors access to those Justices. Well, but this is the other thing that I think is really important because, again, I would like to say not there's not a direct equivalent of this on the left, but mm. there are organizations, pipelines, professional organizations, like there are, there are to like go through, make sure, know what your politics are, like know what you're going to do. There are. What is different about this? And what I think is really important about this is that it creates this hermetically sealed world where I feel like these right-wing justices don't understand that there is a bigger world than this thing that they live in. Yeah. They don't have access to any kind of bigger world. They don't have access to other people who are living differently And when they're in the echo chamber of these people all the time, I think they can really come to believe that this is just what everybody wants and this is what everything is. And this is how it's always been and it's the most powerful thing in the world. Yeah. I I will say, I was reading about the, um, the Supreme Court Historical Society, which is a nonprofit, it's a charity that 
it's like really what it sounds like. It's for preserving and teaching about the history of the court and stuff like that. And, um, you know, the New York Times reported some kind of sketchy stuff about the way that like donors who give money uh, then can go to events where they get to hobnob with the justices. And it's like buying access. And liberals and conservatives alike who were interviewed about this were like, it's not a thing. It's not a big deal. And, you know, in part because how much access is like a dinner granting you, but it's like more access than I have, okay? But also because these justices already know all these people. Yeah. The people who are making these donations and hobnobbing with them at these events, they are already all part of the same insular community. They already all know each other. That's right. They just have a very limited understanding of a bigger world. They just have yeah. a very limited understanding of a like bigger world. Their whole job. It's like they have one job and it's to understand the fucking world. Like this idea that their job is to interpret a text, to try to understand how the text of the constitution compares with the text of this congressional act. And this happens in some kind of vacuum of of legal analysis, of of high-minded abstraction, legal abstraction. Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest problem with the court, full stop. That's right. All right, so what I really want to get to is how all of this stuff we talked about with the corruption scandals and the bad decisions and the Federalist Society and their whole project, I want to talk about the real world implications, what this means, what this looks like in practice um, by diving into some of this session's horrible decisions and really looking at uh, how bad they are. And I also kind of want to talk about like our big picture takeaways, like what, what can we do about this? What are the implications for our democracy? Uh, however, uh, I think we have to save that for another episode. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's the next episode, um, because we've basically told you how we got this fucked. Right. We've told you that it is historically, for most of the time, always been kind of this fucked. Right. So now the question is, what does that mean for us moving forward in terms of understanding what they're doing and how as voters and thinkers to think about this. Uh, And I think that we're going to get to that next week. To be continued. All right, listeners, I want you to come to the Sauce Speakeasy. Join us at patreon.com slash sauce podcast and tell me which Supreme Court decision really broke your spirit of all of the spirit breaking decisions there are so many that have been breaking my spirit but which one it might even surprise you the one that really broke my spirit was like what was the one that really like fucking we want to know stuck the knife in just twisted it yeah again you can find us at patreon.com slash sauce podcast and if you join at any level you can join our discord the sauce speakeasy and share your thoughts you can also email us we are sauce podcast at gmail.com you can find us on all the socials as at sauce except podcast. for blue sky we're okay. not on blue sky no but yet. we as individuals are on blue sky 
And speaking of which, you can find me at Maya Garantz. Anywhere you are looking for Maya Garantz's. You can find me as at Gynostar on all the various platforms. We really do want to hear from you because we do need to commiserate. But also, if this is what it's going to be for the next, whatever, 20 years, like, how are we going to do that? Because I feel like part of what's so horrible is that if our idea of what it was supposed to be is just not what it is, then how does that change how we, like, look at it going forward? These are great questions. We have a lot to talk about as we continue this conversation about the Supreme Court. In the meantime, adios, amibas.